All right, good morning, everybody. Not just the little kids this time, right? If you have your Bible, you need to open to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to start today. Uh, We're going to be in a few different places, but we're going to camp out in Luke chapter 2 to start. We are in week number 3 of our Advent Sermon Series. We have lit three candles this morning. Uh, As I've told you a few times already, we're taking a break from our normal expositional study in 2 Corinthians right now for a topical snack uh, that will hopefully build our excitement and our anticipation of our celebration of the Incarnation. That's kind of the design of Advent is to build that excitement and anticipation. This year, uh, for Advent, we are considering the mission of Christmas. That's what this image is about, trying to answer the question, why did Jesus come? And for whom did Jesus come? And will he accomplish the mission for which he came? Each week we're trying to root ourselves in a Christmas text, but also consider other passages, right? To see that these things we're talking about are not just Christmas truths. These are major themes that are all throughout the scriptures. We're also each week trying to make an effort to zoom out, zoom out from the manger scene, consider the whole picture of Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his promised return, the whole story. We're singing about that. We're trying to think about that. On week one, we considered why Jesus came from Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when the angel says to Joseph, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I told you that that's why he came, to save his people from their sins. We saw in that text the mission, he will save his people from their sins. We saw the method. We talked about the method. How does he save his people from their sins? By giving his life as a sacrifice. And then we saw the mandate that comes out of that. He's going to send us out with this message of salvation to the ends of the earth. And last week on week two, we began to consider for whom Jesus came. And I argued that he came for those who are far away, not just those who are close at hand. We tried to look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and the arrival of the Magi in particular. And I argued from that text that God drew these men from far away to worship the Lord in his earliest days. God used stars and ancient prophecy. He used exiled Jews. He even used an evil king to get these men who are far away to worship Jesus. Jesus came for those who are far away, even for those who are not part of Abraham's family. I want to show you this image. Speaking of Magi, I got this photo from uh, our friend in Central Asia, Matt. He sent this to me on Monday. Uh, I had to blur out his face so that we could show it. And uh, as creepy as that looks, you should have seen the first rendition of it. Uh, it, it, created, it created this like one dark spot where his eyes are. Um, so I kept working on it and, and got it a little better. But that's to be able to show it to you publicly. Uh, but this guy that he is with is a modern day magi. Uh, he is a Zoroastrian priest from the region of ancient Persia. They still call this guy and his colleagues magi. And that guy is the successor of those who followed the star to find Jesus. Uh, And if that's not wild enough, this picture was taken at a baptism service for a new follower of Jesus. This guy, this magi, came to a gathering of a local church in Central Asia to watch a new follower of Jesus be baptized. That magi, that modern-day magi, saw and heard the gospel of Jesus clearly that day. And so would you pray that the Lord would move in his heart so that he too would bow and worship the Lord Jesus Christ and put all his trust in him, that he would be like those ancestors of his who bowed and worshiped the Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty wild, right? 
the wildest part of this is that Matt did not know that I had talked about the Magi that morning. And Monday, he sent me this image. It's good stuff. That's what we talked about last week. We also looked at the genealogy of Jesus from Matthew chapter 1. We noticed in the genealogy that there are several outsiders who are included, showing us again the heart of God for those who are far away. And that's good news for us uh, because we are those who are far away. Most of us in this room cannot trace our heritage back to Abraham. But we who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And that is good news that we should celebrate. That is good news that we should be grateful for. It should keep us humble to know that we who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's also good news that we must take and send to the far places, to those who are, like us, far away. Now, this reminds me of a story that I heard last Sunday night. I have a good friend who speaks with a certain country or southern accent. He pronounces the word fire, F-I-R-E, as far. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes he said it led to the conclusion that last week, as I encourage you to preach to the far places, that you might misunderstand and think that I was asking you to preach to your fireplace. He said, you need to clarify that for us rednecks so that we're not traveling to the ends of the earth to preach to fireplaces. No, we want to travel to the ends of the earth to preach to far places. The far places where God is saving people for himself. Remember last week I told you that John Piper said there are only three kinds of Christians when it comes to the world missions. Zealous goers, zealous senders, and disobedient. And then he adds, may God deliver us from disobedience. And that's my prayer for First Baptist Church, that God would deliver us from disobedience, that we would be full of zealous goers, like Matt and his family, like the T family, like others who have gone out from this place to the ends of the earth, that we would be zealous goers and that we would be zealous senders, that we would continue to lead the way in holding the ropes for those who have gone in prayer and support. My prayer is that First Baptist Church would continue to lead the way in Lottie Moon giving year after year, that we would be zealous senders, and that God would indeed deliver us from disobedience. This week, we're going to see that Jesus came not just for the farthest, but also for the lowest as well. We'll see that in Luke chapter 2 as the very first people to hear about Jesus' birth, the very first people to hear about the newborn Messiah and worship God in response are lowly shepherds. Look at it in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Remember, this is God's word. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, 
just as had been told to them. Let's pray together. Father, would you continue to open our eyes by, by your spirit, through your word, open our eyes to the mission of Christmas, that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And he did that by giving his life as a sacrifice and rising again from the grave. Would you continue to open our eyes that the people for whom he came include those who are far off, those who are far away, and those who are very low, all kinds of people, including us. Would you remind us of this great gift we have been given of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Would you help us rejoice and be bold proclaimers of this good news to the world around us? Father, for those who are still lost, still dead in their trespasses and sins, would you use your word today and by your spirit cause them to come to life, bring them hope, bring them salvation, not just for their good, but for your glory, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, to understand just how surprising Luke chapter 2 is, we have to get a grasp on the first century Jewish estimation of shepherds. What did first century Jewish people think about shepherds? And there's some debate about the degree to which shepherds were looked down upon, but there is total agreement that they were far from high society. At very best, shepherds in the first century were common and unremarkable men. Average Joes, you might say, unless your name is Joe. I always think about that when I I use the phrase average Joe, and I look at Joe, you don't say that, right? You say something, average Chris's? Yeah. At best, shepherds were average Joes. At worst, they are, as traditional Jewish writings would describe, dishonest and prone to violating Jewish law. Ancient historian Philo says, shepherds are held to be mean and inglorious. I think mean there is not nasty, but like average and inglorious. Jim Daly, whose name you might recognize from Focus on the Family on the radio, he says this about shepherds. During the time of Jesus' birth, To be a shepherd was almost as socially toxic as being a leper. Shepherds were outcasts. For example, even though shepherds raised animals for use in temple sacrifices, among other things, they themselves were considered unclean and as such were not permitted to set foot into the temple. Not only were shepherds engaged in a smelly, dirty, and nomadic profession, they were considered to be unreliable witnesses in matters of law. In fact, if you were a shepherd who witnessed a crime, you were unworthy to give testimony in a court of Jewish law. That's pretty amazing, right? We can say at least the first people to hear about the birth of Jesus were average Joes. And I really think we can go so far as to say that they were social outcasts. Social outcasts, the type of people that most others would try to avoid, if at all possible. So listen to the way Stephen Douglas applies this. He says, the first annunciation to those outside of the family were not to the priestly establishment in Jerusalem, or of uh, those of Herod's royal house, or to the rich landowners of Judea, but rather to these common shepherds whom the rabbinic tradition had tarnished. Get this. Isn't that just like the Lord? Isn't that just like the Lord to choose the lowest, the littlest, the least, for the highest, biggest, greatest work? I think that's just like the Lord, and we see it all throughout the scriptures. In fact, we see this pattern even in the Christmas story, over and over and over. Consider where Jesus was born. Consider the town in which Jesus was born, Bethlehem. Listen to what Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says. 
As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Bethlehem, too little to be among the tribes of Judah. Bethlehem, little insignificant. In a Christmas sermon from 1982, John Piper said this, Bethlehem is scarcely worth counting among the clans of Judah. Yet God chooses to bring his magnificent Messiah out of this town. Why? Well, one answer is that the Messiah is of the lineage of David, and David was a Bethlehemite. That's true, but it misses the point of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. The point of verse 2, Piper says, is that Bethlehem is small. God chooses something small, quiet, out of the way, and does something there that changes the course of history and eternity. Why? Because when he acts this way, we can't boast in the merits of men, but only in the glorious mercy of God. We can't say, well, of course he has set his favor on Bethlehem. Look at the human glory Bethlehem has achieved. All we can say is, God is wonderfully free. He is not impressed by our bigness. He does nothing in order to attract attention to our accomplishments. He does everything to magnify his glorious freedom and mercy. The littlest, the lowest, the least seem to be where God works over and over again. Jesus was born in this small, out-of-the-way town, and then he was laid in a manger. Luke chapter 2, verse 6 while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in claws and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Like we have read that so many times, we have rehearsed that so many times that it's lost all of its shock value to us completely. A young woman gives birth to her firstborn child and puts him in a feeding trough? That's weird. That's not normal. That's why the angel says, this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in claws lying in a manger. There's only one of those evidently in Bethlehem. Most people don't put their babies in a manger. But this one was in a manger. Why? Littlest, least, lowest. We see it all over the Christmas story. Even in that small town, there was no room for him in the inn. Consider not just where he was born and where he was placed after he was born, but consider to whom he was born. Mary and Joseph. Mary was not a princess. She was not nobility and royalty. She was not high society. She was a normal young Jewish girl given to a husband. She describes herself as a bond slave of the Lord in great humility. Look at Luke chapter 1 and know this part of the story. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Mark that. We're going to talk about that in a minute too. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. Greetings, favored one. Graced one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. That's what we sang about a minute ago, right? His kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, listen to Mary. 
Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She doesn't say, of course. Of course. I've expected this my whole life. This has been promised. This is deserved. No, she is recognized as the favored one, the one who found favor, the humble bondservant of the Lord. Let it be done to me as you have said. And then she sings a song about it in the next few verses, right? A song about this great gift that she has been given and the humility with which she receives it. Lowest, least, littlest. It seems like that's among whom he works. Consider Joseph. Though a descendant of David, he's merely a humble carpenter, right? Merely a humble carpenter. In fact, later on in Jesus' life, in Matthew chapter 13, we see this scene where he comes back to Nazareth. Look at it. Matthew chapter 13, verse 54. Now he, that's Jesus, came to his hometown, Nazareth, and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. Where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? That's, that's, a, that's a diss, right? That's not like, ooh, the esteemed special carpenter that we've always expected amazing things from. No, no, no. Isn't this the carpenter? The lowly, normal, everyday carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Lowest, least, littlest. It seems to be the pattern. Speaking of Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, look at John chapter 1, verse 45. Nazareth was hardly a metropolitan center for art and culture, right? It was hardly a military stronghold. Nazareth, as my grandpa would articulate, an insignificant little hole in the ground. John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We read that and we're like, yes, amen, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. If you heard that in the first century, you would say, wait a second. Messiah, Nazareth, no chance. Messiahs don't come from Nazareth. The Messiah is not coming from there. In fact, that's exactly the way Nathaniel responds. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Verse 46, and Philip said to him, come and see. Now, my whole point in going to this text was to show you the insignificance of Nazareth, the lowest, least, littlest of Nazareth. But maybe God has other designs for this text. Maybe you need to hear what Philip says to Nathaniel, come and see. Maybe that's what you need to hear today. Maybe you're kind of like uh, Nathaniel and say, oh, yeah, Mary, Joseph, uh, Nazareth, Bethlehem, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can anything good happen in this story? This is too far-fetched. Maybe I want to say to you like Philip does, come and see. Come and see the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in him. Well, I hope you're beginning to see a pattern here. The low, the little, the least. And that pattern is not just in the Christmas story. That pattern is all throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, right? He is constantly reaching out to the lowest, the least, the littlest. He's constantly helping and serving and saving the lowest, the least, and the littlest. Consider it from Mark chapter 10 as Jesus engages with little children. Little children who, by the way, in the first century were not the center of everyone's attention. Little children who were not uh, that around which the entire household revolved. Little children were often seen as a problem, uh, a nuisance, right? Until they could work and actually do something worthwhile, they were seen as, as a problem, maybe not worth our time. And so look at Mark chapter 10. They were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. 
But the disciples rebuke them. The disciples have the worldview of their culture. The disciples rebuke them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Verse 16, And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Like That's a beautiful picture of Jesus reaching out, holding, caring, serving those who are the least, the littlest, and the lowest. Those whom the rest of the culture would say, no, 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 he doesn't have time for you. He's got more important things to do. You're not, you're not worth it. Jesus is constantly saying to those, oh, you are worth it. Come to me. We see it also in the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4, starting at verse 5. You probably know this story. It says, so he came to a city of Samaria. Again, if you're a Jewish person in the first century and you're reading this story, you immediately like turn up your nose. Oh, Samaria. Called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey and sitting thus by the well, it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water at the sixth hour. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I'm going to stop there and just like recognize this. Lowest, least, littlest. And Jesus is reaching. Jesus is talking. Jesus is ministering. Jesus is serving. This lady's got the whole deck stacked against her when it comes to connection with Jesus, right? She's a woman. That's first thing. In, in Jesus' day, that was, he shouldn't have been talking to this woman. She was a Samaritan woman. That makes it even worse. She was a Samaritan woman at the well in the middle of the day. That's a problem. You're going to, if you know the whole story, you know he talks with her and reveals some stuff that's in her past that makes her kind of questionable. And maybe even like the reason why she's drawing water in the middle of the day is she wasn't welcome to draw water in the morning with the other women from the town. Right? She is an outsider, least, littlest, lowest, and Jesus is reaching to her. This is what he does all the time. And look at how this story plays out. We're going to skip a lot of the story and go straight to the end in chapter 4, verse 39. It says, From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him, that's Jesus, because of the word of the woman who had testified. He told me all the things I have done. Look, what I want you to see is Jesus is reaching this woman who is the least, littlest, and lowest. He's reaching to her. She believes in him, and she tells everyone around her, and many believe in him because of her. You may also know the story of the tax collectors in the New Testament. Tax collectors are way worse than IRS agents today in America. They were guys who had paid the Roman Empire for the privilege of collecting taxes to support their occupation from their countrymen. It just couldn't have gotten worse from a Jewish perspective to look at a Jewish tax collector, somebody working for Rome to take our money to support the occupation. And yet Jesus is constantly reaching to these guys, right? The least, the lowest, the littlest, he's reaching them. We see it in Matthew chapter 9 as Jesus calls Matthew to be one of his closest followers. Jesus went on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth and he said to him, follow me. And I'm telling you, if you were reading this as a first century Jewish person, you would say, what? He told the tax collector to follow him? And he got up and followed him. 
And then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Constantly reaching out to the lowest, the least, the littlest. And people see it and they're like, that's not the way you're supposed to do. You're supposed to reach out to the great and the righteous and the big and the clean. And he's like, no, 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 you've misunderstood. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. We see it with Matthew. We see it with Zacchaeus. What do you know about Zacchaeus? He's a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. You know that part of the story. You might not remember that he was a chief tax collector. Like the leader, the ring leader of the tax collectors. And Jesus reached to him. Look at it in Luke chapter 19. Hey, l- let me just stop here. If this is too much scripture for you, I make no apology. I am not sorry at all. Like if, if, if you're like, man, is he just going to keep reading God's word? Yep. I, I, my, my goal today is to string together enough of these stories that it's like undeniable. It's undeniable that he has come for the least and the littlest and the lowest. Can't get around it. It's everywhere you look in the book. Matthew, I mean Luke chapter 19, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was but was unable because of the crowd. For he was small in stature. And he's going to wear that the rest of eternity. You realize that, right? Like, we're going to be walking along in glory. And, 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 yep, you can spot him. He's a wee little man. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and I've, if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, look at verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Maybe that's the other L. Least, littlest, lowest, lostest. That's who he came for. We see it everywhere we turn. Wait, there's a fifth L, the lepers. Look at this in the scriptures. The lepers, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Let's stop and get a little bit of background about leprosy, right? From the culture of the day, and from the law of God. If you are a leper, you are unclean, and you are super contagious. And it is your responsibility, if you have leprosy, to see to it that no one touches you, right? So when, when you live most of your life outside of the city, removed from everybody else, like separated, cut off, you know, on the outside. But if you have to come into the city, you have to walk around saying, unclean, unclean, so that nobody accidentally catches what you've got. You see what's going on here? You would have lived your entire life ostracized from the community, on the outside, never being touched by anyone. 
Talk about least, littlest, lowest. Lord, this man says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You need that kind of theology. You and I need that kind of theology. If you are willing, you can make me clean, Jesus says to this man. And look at verse 13. This is crazy. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. You don't do that. No one does that. No one does that. And if you did in that day, you catch leprosy. Not when Jesus touches this man. Jesus reaches out and touches him. And with his power and with his purity, that man is forever changed by his grace. The least, the lowest, the littlest, the lost, the lepers. Jesus is after these folks. He's also after the prostitute, evidently. Look at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. This is a long story. Now, one of the Pharisees, who are those guys? This is squeaky clean religious types, right? Self-righteous, squeaky clean. Make sure none of the rules are broken. In fact, let's make rules around the rules so we don't break the rules. Self-righteous, legalists. One of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with them. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And most scholars believe a sexual sinner. Most scholars connect the dots and say she was a prostitute, just the way the language reads there. And when she learned he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him. He didn't say anything. He was just thinking this in his head. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, that's 500 days worth of wage, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's quite a scene, right? Seems like everyone in the room is like, this kind of woman? This kind of woman? Why in the world is he talking to and entertaining this kind of woman? And then Jesus tells that story about the one who's forgiven much, loves much. And he says, this woman's sins are forgiven? Do, do you see that Jesus came for the least and the littlest and the lowest and the lost and the leper and the prostitute? He came for those who are far away. And those who are really low, and to be honest, I could go on and on, right? Go on and on with stories like this from the Gospels. Just from the Gospels, we could go on and on about stories of this. We could, 
then go to Acts. So we could go back to the Old Testament. We could continue to talk about stories like this all day long. The Bible is full of stories of the Lord reaching out and serving and helping and saving the littlest, the least, and the lowest. But as one of my friends says, we got to land the plane. and We need to make practical applications. And it feels very natural to say, if this is what Jesus did, always reaching out to the least and the littlest and the lowest, always serving and helping those who are low, then that's exactly what we need to do. And it is. It's true. It's exactly what we need to do. And so we do things like the Angel Tree and the Pregnancy Resource Center and the Four C's. We do things like disaster relief and sin relief. And Christmas time indeed affords us some extra opportunities to do this kind of work. To reach out, serve, and help the least and the littlest and the lowest. And I want you to hear me say, take advantage of those opportunities. Follow in the footsteps of Jesus and serve like that. But there is a real danger if that's all we say today. There's a real danger if that's all I say today, or even if that's the loudest thing I say today. So hear me very clearly. We are the lowest. We are the least. We are the littlest. And he came for us. He came for us. And that should shock us in amazement. Like that should blow us away. Like when Matthew heard the Messiah say, come follow me, he, he, he surely should have been like, wait, I'm a tax collector. Me? That's exactly the response that we should have. It should shock us in amazement that he came for us. We do not deserve the Lord's attention. We do not deserve his attention except maybe for destruction and condemnation. We don't deserve his attention. The prospect of the holy God crushing the sinful man under his righteous wrath should not surprise us one bit. It makes perfect sense that the Lord would wipe us out. What should blow us away is that the holy God would make a way for the sinful man to be reconciled to himself. That he would make a way through the cross, through the sacrificial death of his own son. It should blow us away that the price that was paid for our salvation is the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That should shock us more than Jesus touching a leper. That should shock us more than the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, placed in a manger. It should shock us that the holy God has made a way for the sinful man to be reconciled to himself through the death of his own son. We are the least and the lowest and the littlest, and he came for us. And that should shock us in amazement. It should also humble us in gratitude. It should humble us in gratitude because we have been given a position that we have not earned. We have been given a position that we have not earned, not even close to earning it. We have been declared righteous by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Our sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. We have been adopted as sons and daughters of the king of all kings that should blow us away and humble us in gratitude. We have been given a gift that is extravagant beyond all measure, a gift that we receive by faith. And when we receive a gift, boys and girls pay attention when we receive a gift, we say thank you. And we need to say thank you today. Those of us who are Christians, who've received the gift of eternal life, we need to say thank you. With every breath we take, we need to say thank you. He came for us, little, least, low. That should shock us in amazement. It should humble us in gratitude. And lastly, it should compel us in proclamation. This good news 
that has been delivered to us, has been declared to us, this good news that worked powerfully to change our lives is something that the whole world needs to hear. The whole world needs to hear about Jesus' death on the cross. The whole world needs to hear about his resurrection. The whole world needs to hear about his ascension. The whole world needs to hear about his promised return. The whole world needs to hear about the offer of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The whole world needs to hear this. And who will tell them if we don't? Who will tell the whole world about this if we will not tell them? God has called, God has commissioned, compelled, empowered the church to spread the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the ends of the earth. David Platt has often said, we are plan A to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And there is no plan B. So what do we do? Go tell it on the mountain. Mama T, you singing that song tonight? Go tell it on the mountain. Over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain. That Jesus Christ is born. Tell, tell him also that he lived. Tell him that he died. Tell him that he rose again. Tell him that he alone can save you. The fact that he came for the least, the littlest, and the lowest should compel us in proclamation, should humble us in gratitude, it should shock us in amazement. Maybe we need a little more of the Apostle Paul's attitude that he expresses in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Listen to this statement. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his young protege, right? And he says this, is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen? Of whom I am the foremost. Amen? Double amen to that. Jesus came to save sinners. And I'm the chief. I'm the chief of them all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy. So that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who believe in him for eternal life. Like, well, what's his point? He's like, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of the worst, and he came for me as an example for all those who would believe. I think uh, maybe if you were doing like modern paraphrase, you, you would say, if he can save me, he can save anybody. And I believe that. I believe that in my own experience, not, not from the words of the Apostle Paul, but what I know of my own wretched, miserable heart. If he can save me, he can save anybody. And look at verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the end game. It's not just the salvation of sinners. That's not the end game. The end game is the glory of God forever and ever in the salvation of sinners. I am littler than those little kids, dirtier than those lepers, more corrupt than the tax collectors, and more sinful than the prostitutes. I know that about myself. And yet he came for me, died on the cross in my place, rose up from the grave again for me. And if he can save me, he can save anybody, even you. So repent of your sins and believe today and be saved. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, help us to know this. It's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the foremost of all. He saved me. And I believe he can save anybody. So Lord, would you today save sinners? Teach men and women and boys and girls about their littleness, their leastness, their lowness. Teach them about their sinfulness in light of your great holiness. Teach them about Christ on the cross in their place, dying and then rising again. Give them faith to trust in Christ. Grant them repentance to turn away from sins and give the gift of eternal life by your grace. We pray today. And for those of us who've received this gift already, shock us in amazement over again that you would come for us. Humble us in gratitude that you would come for us and compel us in proclamation to go tell it on the mountain, over the hill, and everywhere to tell the world that Christ saves. Lord, have your way as we respond to your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.